I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In true verdict fashion, it is now midnight on the East Coast. Senator Ted Cruz has just come back from the Capitol after what I hope was a very edifying hour and a half long nap during the worst State of the Union address that I have ever seen in my lifetime. It's not just a partisan bomb. I am not being hyperbolic. I've watched a lot of them. It was very difficult. And I at least was able to sit on a nice cushy chair and drink scotch. Senator, you have truly impressed me tonight. You are still going. You, uh, you may still be sleeping for all I know. <laughs> what did you see at the Capitol? Well, you're right that I just left the Capitol and uh, it was a long speech. Uh, this is the 10th State of the Union uh, that I have sat on the floor of the House of Representatives and listened to. Uh, the third president from whom I've heard a State of the Union. And I agree with your assessment that, that this was the most out of touch State of the Union I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, for one thing, Joe Biden was reading the teleprompter and was unsteady. He was unsure. His hands were shaking. Um, you could really see his age. And, and the speech, it made brief acknowledgments of the challenges that are facing the country, but it, it, it totally ignored Biden's responsibility for those challenges. So he mentioned inflation, didn't say a word about the trillions in spending and trillions in debt that is causing the inflation. Right. Uh, he mentions gas prices going through the roof, didn't say a word about the policies of the administration. 
making domestic exploration so much harder, driving gas prices through the roof. He talked about the need to secure the southern border. Didn't say a word about his administration's policies refusing to enforce the border. He talked about Russia invading Ukraine. Didn't say a word about his waiving sanctions on Nord Stream 2, his weakness toward, right. towards Putin. Before we get into the the state of the Putin, as I was calling it, which was the first, <laughs> you know, 10 or 15 minutes of the speech, on the point that you just brought up on securing the border, I thought that was genuinely sort of surprising because the Democrats have been quite explicitly for for almost entirely open borders yeah. at, in recent years. Uh, no enforcement, catch and release, pa- path to citizenship, amnesty, no human is illegal. They've been using all that kind of language. Was that unexpected tonight in the room for Joe Biden to, to sound like a, a sort of 90s Democrat and say, no, we actually do need to secure the border? So a little bit. I mean, look, he had a couple of rhetorical flourishes that that went somewhat to the right. So when he said, we need to secure the border, all the Republicans stood up and applauded. We all applauded that. And it, yeah. and it, it was you're right. It's different rhetoric than the AOCs of the world are using. Um I think he decided to say that, but I think he thinks the American people are dumb. And, well, wait a second, if you want to secure the border, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary who is preventing Border Patrol from securing the border, he was sitting right in front of me. He stood and applauded on we need to secure the border. Yeah. He also, when he testifies before Congress, tells us the border is secure. Right, right. So, so it, it um, you know, Biden also said uh, we shouldn't apol- abolish the police. We, sh- we should fund the police. Yeah. Again, Republicans stood and applauded to that. Now, that was to make a point. Um, the Democrats also stood and applauded on on both of those lines. So they at least rhetorically are trying to back away from their extremes. Mm. But he doesn't acknowledge that he keeps appointing people to the Justice Department that are leading advocates of abolishing the police. He doesn't acknowledge that he appoints as federal prosecutors people who are Soros-backed DAs and releasing violent criminals. So so it really is a gaslighting, like I'll give you a tiny bit of rhetoric, mm. but with no willingness to change the policy. Right. Hi- hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue, they say. And so I think you certainly saw a lot of that. Even there was a moment, it was so bizarre, where the Democrats stood up and they chanted USA yeah. as if they were I don't. It, it seemed as though they were doing an impression of a Republican or something. I, in the in that, I don't, these are people who have been denigrating the country, protesting the flags, saying America's a racist, awful place. I'd I'd never heard them do that before. You, you know, it, it was an odd. So the Democratic pollsters clearly told Biden, number one on Russia and Ukraine, pitch that the world is united and you've united the world. That is the Democratic narrative. It's what the corporate media is echoing. Yeah. Uh, number two on COVID, clearly lockdown policies are a disaster. Mask policies are a disaster. And they've gotten the polling. Now, what's changed has not been the science. The science hasn't changed at all, but the polling has changed dramatically. And so Biden's message was, I solved COVID. Th- thanks to all of the mandates and illegal things I did, COVID is solved. Isn't it wonderful? So at another point, he said we shouldn't shut down schools. Again, Republicans all stood and applauded. Now, mind you, when last year I introduced an amendment to say no federal funds, no new federal funds for schools that are shut down, every single Senate Democrat voted against it. So the people who are standing saying don't shut down schools aren't actually willing to support policies that do that. Hmm. But I think they've decided, let's give a tiny rhetorical nod to the other side. 
but not even an inch on policy. So th- this did strike me, and I, I couldn't tell if this was just my inner partisan c- coming out. The, the divide here between what the Democrats have done in the last 12 months yeah. and, and even before that and what they were saying they supported, the clearest example being defund the police. They they did defund the police. They Not all of them, but a uh, great number of them in leadership called for defunding the police, and then they did a complete 180. You saw it on a whole lot of other issues as well. Is that typical? You know, politicians, they say one thing, they do another. Or is that unique to this administration, to this year, to this State of the Union? I think there's a degree of mendacity that we're seeing from Democrats that that is brazen even among politicians. Mm. Right after saying don't defund the police, Biden used their talking point which is in their, you know, massive spending trillion dollar spend a Palooza. They had a little bit of money for police. Republicans voted against it. So they're saying, aha, it's Republicans who want to defund the police. And it's it it's asinine. Yeah. But but they stand there and say it with a straight face and they're that they realize this polls badly. So let's do it and then blame the other side for it. I don't think anyone really buys it. But but it is. They're scared of the rhetoric. Let's take something like masks. So last week, Pelosi had put out that everyone attending the speech had to wear a mask, had to wear an N95 mask and be tested to come. And if they'd kept that policy in place, I think you would have had half the people in attendance. Right. I, I can tell you from my end, I wasn't wearing a damn mask to the speech. Yeah. And and it was interesting. I was talking to some of the House members afterwards and, and they said they were asking Pelosi, well, what are you going to do with senators? Because she, she can find House members. She can't find senators. And she said, well, it, well, I'll find them or I'll have them removed. And I had one of the House Republicans who were like, Cruz, I really wanted you to show up without a mask and to see Pelosi try to have you removed. And uh, I, I got to admit, I, I considered it. I'm not sure what I would have done if I would have gone to the State of the Union and not worn a mask or if I would have just not attended. But then I think their pollsters realized, oh, my goodness, if people turn on the TV and they see all these Democrats wearing N95 masks, it's going to make clear what a disaster that that it is. So in the last couple of days, California rescinded their mask mandate. All these blue states are rescinding their mask mandates. It's amazing. The science is incredibly calibrated to (laughs) political dates like the State of the Union. It is a State of the Union miracle that suddenly blue states realized we don't need mask mandates anymore. And Biden said in schools, suddenly we don't need masks anymore. Who knew? What an incredible revelation uh, that the pollsters told him. Right. And and so in a way, I'm I'm glad that the Democrats are admitting, at least tacitly, that their views were completely nuts. Our views were right. They play a lot better in Peoria. Now, as you have implied, uh, they're probably not going to follow this up with real policy. So that that's pretty spooky. I, 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 one thing I noticed about this State of the Union compared to others that I've watched is, and, and especially including the Trump States of the Union, were or State of the Union addresses rather. It's not like attorneys general. You know, it's that's not where you put the plural. The, but but in those state of the unions, states of the union, I don't know. state ofs, I don't know. You know, it's very late. Who these things get jumbled. speeches? Now I'm starting to sound like Joe Biden himself. You, you do. Next thing you know, you're going to say that the Iranians were surrounded by the Russians in in <laughs> yes, Kiev. Right, the Iranians. We and we do have to get to Putin. But the the question that I had was, 
unlike previous addresses that we've heard, in this one, Biden wasn't able to really point to any accomplishments. And so when he said the State of the Union is strong, he would he would point to things that he's going to do next year or in five years or into the future. At the very end of the speech, he said, the State of the Union is strong and it'll be stronger next year. And I, I thought, is that not an indictment of your first year in office that everything has to be in the future because nothing's happening now? Well, look, I think you're right. Normally in a State of the Union, you have a president that says, look at all we accomplished. And, and Biden pointed to two things. He pointed to number one, the massive COVID $1.9 trillion spending Palooza bill that he said solved everything. But I don't think anyone listening actually believed that. Hmm. And then he pointed secondly to the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. And those are two Two bills that passed, it's accurate, they were signed into law. But but when you look about uh, at major accomplishments for the American people, I don't think there are a whole lot of folks that consider it that. You know, one of the things that's strange, so look, anyone fairly assessing where Biden is, his poll numbers nationally are below 40%. I mean, the wheels have come, come off and policy area after policy area is going really badly. A State of the Union, this is the last major opportunity Biden had to try to change course, to try to recalibrate going into the midterms. And Democrats now all but accept that the midterms are going to be a train wreck for them. They all acknowledge they're going to lose the House, and more and more they're getting worried they're going to lose the Senate as well. I think they have reason to be worried. What I found amazing is that Biden didn't try to pivot to the center in any meaningful way, that he didn't try... You know, in 2020, when he was running in the Democratic primary, he stood up to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and he said, I'm a reasonable moderate Democrat. And there was no moment where he took on his left. There was no moment where he changed his policy one iota. Everything he said he wanted to do were all elements of his so-called big Build Back Better bill, which, which the rest of us call Build Back Broke. And I got to say, look, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema made clear that isn't going to pass. And it was striking. Manchin was sitting with the Republicans on our side uh, uh, of the floor. He was the only Democrat sitting on our side. Um, I thought that was just weird to not even acknowledge, Okay, their big signature legislation that got voted down and has no prospects for for passing. That's what he's going to talk about Mm -hmm. as his major accomplishment and do nothing to try to pivot in the direction of reasonableness headed to the the election in November, I think this White House has decided they're doubling down hard left and and see what happens on Election Day. Now, what was your take if you had the opportunity to speak to many of your colleagues, uh, you know, actually at the Capitol tonight? What was what was the temperature in the room after the speech? Oh, I think there was a pretty partisan divide. Um, You know, Schumer was positively giddy, eager to jump up and down and jump up and down. And one of my favorite games that I play at every State of the Union is is watching the Democrats try to figure out when to stand and when not to. Schumer seemed to get it wrong a little bit tonight. He sort of went halfway up. He he popped up a couple of times (laughs) all alone. And it was kind of it was it was like, wow, for a majority leader, typically a leader is leading someone. Um, There was one moment where where Biden said the CDC has said we don't need masks anymore. And I clapped loudly. (laughs) And it was I don't know if you could pick it up on the TV broadcast, but at least the folks around were broad were cracking up laughing because it was that there's always the sort of with the applause, the the other party has a chance to highlight things the president says that inadvertently the other side agrees with. 
<laughs> right, right. Now, the I don't want to end. I mean, we're, we're not going to keep you here all night, but I, I don't want to end without going back to the first part of the speech. For, for the first 10, maybe 20 minutes of the speech, I was wondering if he was ever going to mention America because yeah. he was focused entirely on the war in Ukraine. Uh, we know, I mean, we've talked about the war in Ukraine quite a lot. I'm sure we will on future episodes. What was the political calculation for opening the speech and spending so much time on Ukraine? Well, I think the Democrats have two narratives of success that they want to pitch. One, which he also had, was the pitch of we've created a bunch of jobs. Now, he ignored the fact that that Democratic politicians shut millions of small businesses down, destroyed millions of jobs. And then when they allowed them to open up again, they said people going back to work was creating jobs. Right. I, I don't think anyone buys that. We have fewer jobs today than we had before COVID. And that's that's sort of an inconvenient fact in the way to the Democratic narrative. The other Democratic narrative, and it really is amazing, we're facing the first major land war in Europe since World War II. By any measure, that is a monumentally bad screw-up. Yeah. And yet the Democrats have convinced themselves of this narrative that Biden has unified NATO and the world like no president before, that he's forged together. This is his moment of presidential leadership, that all of Europe is, holy crap, Putin's really bad. Yeah. And, and it's a weird, you're seeing Democrats really leaning in and invested in this, and you're seeing the corporate media trying to spin it like crazy, like this is, they're already awarding Biden the Nobel Prize. Yeah for losing Ukraine and surrendering to Putin. I mean, it's the most bizarre, uh, you, you, you know, on that reasoning, Neville Chamberlain was an incredible leader by appeasing Hitler and letting the Nazis invade. He ended up creating the allies. So look at what a great unifier Neville Chamberlain was. That's their reasoning here. Uh, it, it uh, I think it's an, it is a very beltway narrative. It's a narrative mm that elites in Washington who go to the Council on Foreign Relations and Brookings and, and, and hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we refer sort of jokingly to the Pocket Square Coalition, which are the folks in D.C. that all are wearing little pocket squares. <laughs> right. Um, in that crowd, that argument makes sense. Um, hmm. It doesn't make sense a whole lot of other places. So uh, maybe we can end on this note, there were a lot of people that Biden was talking to tonight. He was talking directly to the Congress, but really he was talking beyond the Congress. He was talking to those voters who were going to be going to the polls in November and deciding the midterm elections. He was talking to the pocket square crowd. He was talking to, perhaps he was talking to our allies around the world. How did he do? Did he, did he, move his ball down the field with any of those groups? Did he have any wins or was it a total flop? So I don't think he persuaded any persuadables. If you came in undecided tonight, I don't think you shifted to I'm team Biden. Yeah. Um, I think maybe, look, his numbers are so underwater yeah. that maybe their plan was let's try to shore up their base a little bit because they're Democrats who are demoralized by, by what they're doing. And so he hit lots of Democrat hot buttons. Um, 
you know, he went an entire speech and he didn't talk about China. He went an entire speech. He didn't talk about Afghanistan. Right. The biggest military disaster of the last generation. And he didn't even say so much as a word Hmm. about Afghanistan. He didn't talk about crime. We've got skyrocketing murder rates, carjacking rates in Democratic cities all over the country. He didn't say a word about that. Um, He didn't talk about Israel. That's this first foreign policy, first day of the union address I can think of where the president didn't mention Israel in any way, shape or form. Hmm. All of that was curious. and, and, And I think they were speaking to Democrats and trying to put out their talking points for we're not all screwed up. And and there were not all screwed up talking points are Europe is all unified against Russia after we screwed up Russia and Ukraine. Right. And we have lots of jobs after Democrats destroyed those jobs. Some of them have come back. Right. Um, and that's about it. I mean, I mean, that's their, 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 their talking points. You know, I think there was an element of him that was kind of a little pissed off that things aren't going well. He didn't say it, but there was an implied, come on, man, right. that, that, that was sort of screaming off the podium. Um, but it was, I don't think there was any self-awareness hmm. in the speech. There was no acknowledgement of any mistake, no acknowledgement of any policy that might have been even slightly off. And no course correction. That's the most curious thing is is particularly when a presidency is in trouble. And by the way, Bill Clinton did this masterfully. When he was in trouble, he'd get up in the State of the Union and wow everybody. And listen, I was not a fan of Clinton, but damn, he was he was an effective politician. He he could he could give a speech that even if you disagreed with him, you found yourself agreeing with a lot of the stuff he said. And and Biden was not, I suspect you, neither you nor I, were nodding along in agreement with very much. And what little we nodded, we're sitting there going, you got to be friggin' kidding me. When he says we should secure the border, okay, yeah, I agree with that, but this clown isn't doing it. I mean, the, the problem was the few things he said that you agreed with weren't remotely credible because he wasn't actually proposing any substance to it. He was just giving empty rhetorical nods. Right. You were waiting for that moment of Bill Clinton getting up there saying the era of big government is over. I have heard you. Right. Things have gone wrong. I'm actually going to make a course correction. And there, there was no grappling with reality. The things that really, really, really went wrong under under Biden's reign so far, he just completely ignored, as you mentioned, the things that have sort of gone wrong. He tried to twist and make it seem like a net positive. And then he said, don't worry, we're going to turn everything around in the future. See you next year. He ended the speech and said, go get them. I've never heard a State of the Union end on the phrase, go get them. I will say one other dynamic that may not have been as clear watching it on TV. It was really hard to hear him. Like he mumbled and like a bunch of us where he was, police, uh, and you're like, what? It's so... A lot of times the Republicans are like, we, we can't even tell what he's saying. And it, it was a a bunch of us had that reaction that it was just he was not enunciating clearly. And and it was really difficult to understand what he was saying. That it, that is true. Even when he's on the microphone on TV, I suspect we could hear it much more clearly than you could in the room. Well, I'm glad that uh, at least everyone there was uh, 
was as confused as the president was. And perhaps that could help you stay awake. You were on your toes enough. What was that word? What was that syllable? Uh, So overall, Senator, you're saying an unremarkable state of the union for an unremarkable presidency. The state of the union, not as strong as it could be. Well, I think the country is strong, but I think the State of the Union is in real trouble under failed Biden policies. But I will say the 13-year-old kid was cute. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was glad he was there. Uh, I kind of wish we'd all sung him happy birthday. Yeah. That, 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 that was sort of a moment, um, uh, you know, a, a moment. And, and the woman who's, who's uh, the, 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 the widow of the soldier who died, that was also those were both nice moments where yeah. you saw some bipartisan. All right, we support you. And the Pittsburgh steel worker, he didn't say enough for us to know. I think we all wanted to support him, too. But we we're trying to hear like, all right, what's who who is he and what's he here for? What are we applauding? Right. You know, there is an element. If it's your party's president, you pretty much applaud at whatever he says. Yeah. I mean, it's it's and that's true on both sides. When it's the D's, all the D's applaud at whatever he says. Yay! And when it's the R's, all the R's applaud at whatever he says. When it's the other side, you're sitting there thinking, okay, what? What? You know, because you don't want to be caught on video applauding some dumbass policy that's terrible. Right. And 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 if you are concerned that what he's trying to say is that. You're trying to listen carefully to determine, okay, what, all right, if it's, we like 13 year old kids, all right, that I'll applaud. America's good. Yeah. Team USA, right. go military. All of those are good. Russia bad. Yeah. Um, but more broadly, it, 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 there's a lot of, what is that? What are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been true, not just of this speech but of the entire Biden uh, presidency. I, I will tell you this, more than once Republican senators quietly suggested chanting, let's go, Brandon, but thankfully <laughs> civility took the better of our measures, so we did not, in fact, do that. I will say one of the Republican senators, when Nancy Pelosi was announcing uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, the cabinet of the United States, one of the, the Republican senators behind me, called out fairly loudly, the 30 retiring Democrats of the House of Representatives, which <laughs> yeah. I told him I'd give him 20 bucks if he yelled that just a little louder, but but he didn't do it. That would have been even better, I think, than let's go, Brandon. What? Well, it's all right. We'll have, we'll have the last laugh come November. Uh, until then, Senator, get some sleep. You'll, I'm sure you'll be up uh, early at it again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security Pack, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security Pack plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 